Project A Podcast. I very warm welcome you to our Project A Podcast. Um, my name is Florian Heinemann um, and I'm a general partner here at Project A. And Richard is one of our founders of Fund One, yeah, of a company called Contorion. And uh, we thought it's about time to catch up. Welcome, Richard. Yeah, welcome. And uh, my pleasure to, to have a chat with you. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, how you how we usually start is that we talk a little bit about you as a person, how you became an entrepreneur, what you did before, because we have some of the listeners here or some parts of the audience are aspiring entrepreneurs. So we always want to give examples of what path people take towards entrepreneurship. So it would be great to understand what you kind of did before you founded or co-founded Contorium. Sure. Um, so the the spark of entrepreneurship was actually lighted um, in my in my head when I was uh, doing my master's in the United States. I, I did my master's in mechanical engineering in Boston. Uh, it's, it's already been ages ago. It was in 2007 and 2008. And um, yeah, in, in that ecosystem um, around uh, MIT and Boston, uh, everybody was talking about um, you know innovation and startups and, and trying stuff. And um, it was actually a, a very much different spirit from from what I. Um, encountered before in uh, German universities, um, and uh, this was where, where I was really thinking, okay, wow, this could be an option for me. Um, and then uh, I took uh, a path via consulting. I uh, went to McKinsey. Um, was also part of the reason for that, uh, not not directly founding something, uh, was that uh, uh, there was a financial crisis uh, during that time. So I, I thought maybe maybe founding something right into that crisis is not a good idea. Um, and that after after uh, then after a couple of years at McKinsey, um, uh, I went back to the initial plans uh, and uh, founded Contorion uh, together with Frederick and Tobias um, in 2014. How did you meet your co-founders? Uh, just to to give also people a little bit of perspective there. I mean, how did you get get together? Uh, actually, Frederick uh, was a good friend of mine um, already uh, from McKinsey times. So. Um, We've been, or we, or we met in 2010 at McKinsey in the uh, Düsseldorf office, and uh, we're partying together and hanging out and, and doing mostly private. We never worked together at McKinsey, but we uh, were friends. Um, and uh, yeah, then we were discussing uh, different ideas at some point. Um, Frederick uh, already left McKinsey um, uh, a while before. Um, and we were discussing ideas of uh, of, uh, of startup um, that we can uh, we can found together, and then uh, um, the topic of B two B e commerce uh, made it to the top of the list, and uh, we then got to talk to uh, to Project A, um, as you know, and uh, yeah, I mean Project A also considered the topic to be very interesting and was already looking into that direction, um, and uh, then via Project A uh, via Uwe actually. Um, we got the connection to uh, to Tobias, and uh, Uwe is a, is, a, is a friend of Tobias, and that was uh, the link there. And just in hindsight, I mean, you are all you all studied. I mean, you studied mechanical engineering, but still, I mean, McKinsey background. Tobias is also, uh, you know, with a business administration background. So fairly, you would say, similar backgrounds. But you're very different people, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I mean, personalities. <laughs> I think that that is. I mean, if you know each other, but but in hindsight, is it a good idea to found a business with a friend? Question number one. And uh, would you kind of 
put more emphasis, if you would found again, would you put more emphasis on diversity than you did like back then? Um, was it a good idea to found with a friend? Uh, definitely. So I never regretted that decision. I mean, uh, it, it's n, e, n equals one. So statistically, probably not significant, right? So it, it can, of course, go wrong. Uh, but everything worked very fine in, in that uh, in that constellation. And yeah, maybe it was also uh, uh, just um, uh, also the fact that I that I knew Frederick from before and I, I had a, a strong trust into what he's doing and he trusted what I'm doing. And then that actually helped a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we, we also found a very good way to work together and um, to come to decisions together and um, yeah, that that worked very well. So I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't hesitate to uh, to found again with a friend. Um, and in terms of diversity, um, I would say it depends on the topic. Um, in that case, it was it was e-commerce uh, and marketplace. I would say um, it it was actually a, um, a well balanced founder team um, in terms of uh, the functions that we covered. Um, maybe, um, yeah, I mean, from the ideal setup, um, maybe one person who has a, a very strong tech or product background would have been on the paper, maybe it would have been better. Um, um, but for that topic, I think we were, we were, um, uh, our skills were, were fitting quite well. Um, for uh, for for other topics, it's it's probably different. So if it's like a software um, topic, um, then only being business guys and the founder team is probably not the best idea. So uh, if I would I found again, I mean I, I um, in in my current uh, my current venture, Price Loop, um, I found it together uh, um, with a CTO, so with a with Dat Tran, uh, who is the ex um, head of AI at Axel Springer. And uh, he's a, he's a technical he has a technical background, so um, I think it very much depends on the on the topic. Mm -hmm. Go, going back to Contorium just for for a bit, um, so you you founded the business. What can you just describe for for the audience a little bit, like like brief words? What does Contorium do? Because I mean, you guys are still around. We'll we'll come to that. Uh, so what did you guys start with? Did you pivot uh, during the way? How did you change the model? But but just Give us a little rundown what, what you guys are actually doing. Uh, well, Contorion is a, um, a digital um, e-commerce company for craftsmen and industrial supplies. So basically, Contorion is selling uh, tools, nuts and bolts, um, and workshop equipment and all these different categories um, to B2B companies um, uh, in the space of you know, uh, uh, craftsmen, um, and uh, small industrial companies and mid-sized industrial companies. So that, that's the main focus of Contorion. Um, Contorion is currently in uh, Germany, France, and Austria. Um, and um, yeah, Contorion today is running uh, roughly 200 million in revenue <clears throat> um, and uh, has uh, roughly 300 employees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that very well because it was our, I mean, we had like one ex larger exit before, which was, Tirendo, but then it was definitely our largest exit of, of first of the first fund so far. So I remember that obviously very well. And and uh, um, so you, the company was sold after three and a half or four years, right? Roughly after founding. 
Yeah, it was actually um, surprisingly fast. I mean, we, we actually did, we absolutely did not plan to, to sell the company back then. And uh, today I can tell you uh, that uh, we, we sold the company too early. Um, <laughs> I guess that's... Well, uh, if you talk about too early, what, what, how much revenue or how many people did you employ when, when you sold the company? Um, we were running at, um, at roughly 45 million per year when we sold the company in 2017. And uh, today it's a run rate around 200 million. So actually quite a strong growth uh, also over the last couple of years. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, so um, it, it, this was only possible, of course, also because uh, actually the, the buyer, uh, the Hoffman Group, um, actually treated Contorion in a, in a very good way, I would say. So um, I was very, um, very actually positively surprised after after selling the shares. I mean, I, I, we all three stayed there as managing directors um, up until uh, I left a couple of, uh, couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, we were, I think we all three were quite surprised how well this worked with the, uh, with the buyer. And um, so this was also one of the reasons why, why it worked out to make now 200 million in revenue. Um, and uh, yeah, you, you also um, asked for the pivots in those three years um, up until the exit in 2017. So 2014 to 2017, we actually made one significant pivot. Um, so uh, we started off as a marketplace. So um, uh, really with the hypothesis to integrate a lot of um, suppliers, you know, with, with a huge number of products. And uh, one of the KPIs we were tracking was the number of um, articles or, or product numbers that we integrated uh, onto the platform. Um, and uh, then at, at some point we figured out, we figured out, okay, this doesn't work in terms of margins. Um, it doesn't work. So the margins in this, in this uh, market are just so slim that it's going to be very tough with a pure uh, marketplace model. And this is where we actually pivoted towards being more a, um, uh, a, 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 an e-commerce company, actually buying the goods and putting them on stock and then selling the goods and buying directly from manufacturers um, to have more uh, room and margins. Also, um, to have a private label brand. A private label brand is called Stier, um, uh, which is now uh, actually also a very successful brand and contributing a lot to Contorian success. Um, so um, that was actually quite a significant pivot. Um, but since then, and, and as we made that pivot, uh, things uh, went upwards, um, I would say. Um, on, a, on quite a straight line, more or less. I mean, there were some ups and downs and um, uh, there were some times where uh, uh, the three of us were not sure if, if uh, we survived the next couple of months. So uh, I guess that's also normal. Um, but then uh, in, in, uh, uh, in the end, everything uh, worked out quite well and now Contoran is on a very good, good track. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, in, in, in... With regards to your pivot, I think if you look at most of the e-commerce companies today, you always see kind of a, and that's regardless whether it's B2B or B2C, you always tend to see kind of a mixture of e-com, like with your own inventory, marketplace, and, and private label. That seems to be kind of the, I mean, obviously the, uh, the percentages to which you do which kind of business varies or the component, the, the, the importance of the components varies a little bit. But I think that's that's what you see in most businesses. I think today, um, can you describe a little bit? Um, I mean, Hoffman Group uh, or the exit to Hoffman Group. Um, it has never been fully disclosed, but uh, it's rumored to be like a six, a, a three-digit million 
kind of amount that, that you guys sold for. So before Flash and Post, it was definitely one of the larger, or still is one of the larger deals that German Mittelstand companies did in, in from like buying a startup, especially in Germany. Um, so what do you think were kind of the success factors? Why that worked? Because I mean, there have been a couple of purchases in the past, and I think Axel Springer has been very, very good at integrating or like sometimes not so much integrating, but at least coping with um, kind of the acquisitions. What did what did the Hoffman Group do well? That that this what were kind of the learnings um, that also other Mittelstand companies could could learn from from your transaction? Yeah. I think um, what Hoffman did very well is uh, that they had the approach uh, in German, uh, alles kann, nichts muss. Um, <laughs> so everything is uh, can be done. Uh, together but but it doesn't have to so they basically offered um, to us to um, you know to to um, uh, lift synergies in, in purchasing and uh, in, in several other dimensions um, but uh, there was never there um, but we never had to so if if we said okay um, uh, to, to lift synergies in a certain area it, for us it doesn't make sense because for whatever reason um, the area is important to us or, or, or some other reasons and then they just said yeah okay fine uh, we trust that you're, you you take the right, deci right decisions so Hoffman um, from the very beginning um, trusted our decisions and trusted that we are able to take the, take the decisions that are best for our business and um, they um, did not um, interfere into into our operations, um, and uh, yeah, they they were they actually did that despite um, uh, quite some some personnel change in their in their top management. Um, uh, yet they were able to to keep that line, and that was I think uh, very important. And uh, one of the points, of course, that is uh, also included um, in in that kind of um, uh, approach. Is that Contorion was not not integrated as a brand, so Contorion remained a separate brand. Contorion remained a separate um, culture, so it was always our aim, and um, I think we achieved that um, to 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 uh, remain a startup culture and not to become uh, corporate. And um, uh, this was all possible because of this general approach of. Um, yeah, if, if we have the idea that there could be a synergy, then we approach um, Hoffman to, to, um, to discuss. Um, and also, of course, there, there were offers from the other side, but there was never the, um, uh, yeah, never the, uh, a discussion, okay, you have to do this because we want to save uh, uh, money or, or whatever. So it was always kind of like um, our decision as management of control. And if you want to take synergies or, or try to lift synergies, um, uh, or we say, okay, it, it doesn't make sense in this case. The flip side of this is, I mean, of the independence is, or seemingly at least, does the corporate that acquired really benefit on the digital kind of know-how and competence kind of side from the startup they acquire? Yeah, I mean, it also has been some criticism for Axel Springer. I mean, everybody says, yeah, Idealo is doing great and, and, and Stepsol is doing great, but does it really enhance kind of the competence of the, the mothership, so to speak? Yeah? And, and, and so what have been your observations there? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that startups like to stay independent, but does it really help the corporate apart from, you know, the performance of the startup? I mean, can, have you contributed 
to the digital transformation also of, of Hoffman itself as, as a, a topic? Uh, it is a topic and we, we contributed. Um, so I can't uh, go into, into the very specifics of, of what we did for them. Uh, but we definitely also um, had, had agreements on how we can help them. Um, also, sometimes on an operational level, sometimes on an interim level, that a person from Contorion helps on, on some topic at Hoffman uh, for some time. Um, but always under the premise that um, the number one priority for the people from Contorion is Contorion. And uh, that also worked relatively well. And um, it was more thought uh, with an approach that um, we help or our people help to, to set things up um, and uh, also help to hire the right people or to, to get the right skills um, at, uh, at, at Hoffman to, to do things then there in the long term. So it was never the idea that people from us uh, run business at Hoffman as a sidekick uh, to Contorium. So that was the, the, the main approach that we took there. But it's, is it fair to say that Hoffman is definitely, I mean, the, the main players in that market, if I, if I know it right, are Wirt, yeah, and it's, I guess, the large incumbent. And then you, you have Berner Group, yeah, probably also, also very active. I mean, they all do slightly different things and have slightly different focuses, but there's a, is a, is a large, uh, large overlap. But is it, is it fair to say that, that Hoffman has def, is definitely one of the, like in terms of digital turnover now of the overall group, that they are definitely one of the players that through Contorion has, has been quite a, quite a front runner in, in that, at least that industry? I would definitely say yes. Um, the digital revenues of the others are, are not completely transparent, but I would say definitely a front runner. Um, yeah, so the others, it, it's also always a question of definition of digital revenue. So uh, some companies are, um, you know, billing uh, large customers via ERP systems and then they call it digital revenue. So that's always also a very, very strong definition question. But I would definitely say, uh, yes. So uh, Hoffman together with Contorion is, uh, is, is within the top three or top five in that market, uh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, and for, for you guys going forward, I mean, the managing directors or the founders, you guys stayed on board. Um, or it, basically, you were the first one to leave now after, I think, four years. Um, founding your next business, we'll come to that in a minute. How stable has the rest of the team been? I mean, has have, have you been able, like, you know, when, the, when you're sold, sometimes the energy leaves your organization. That's also now the discussion. I don't know whether you heard about it, but Imarsis, for example, they have been bought by SAP recently. And if you hear uh, Imarsis customers speak among each other, they say, oh, that's bad news. You know, now no innovation is going to come out of Imarsis without me saying whether that's wrong or right. But it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a common notion that, uh, you know, independent companies are more innovative, have more energy. Um, how, how was it with, with Contorion? I mean, you guys stayed on board. Uh, but how was the remainder of the team? I mean, were you able to like keep the fun and keep keep the energy? And how did you do that, if if that was the case? Yeah, um, I would say generally yes. Um, there were definitely people uh, who left us, also very strong people who left us uh, since the exit. Um, however, there were also other strong people that we that we that we hired uh, during the same time. Um, so there was no 
peak in unwanted um, attrition or unwanted fluctuation. So it was basically pretty pretty stable, and we also managed to keep fluctuation generally for for being a startup or, or in the startup ecosystem relatively low. Um, and um, yeah, I think one of the one of the key points to achieve that was that for sure Contorian was independent and uh, or or operationally independent um, from Hoffman, and uh, it. it so in, in, in operational um, uh, business and like how the office looked and, and touch and feel the whole work experience, I mean, nothing changed from the year before the exit to the year after the exit. So it was really everything was the same and there was no notion of, okay, um, so Hoffman said that, so we can't do this or, or these kind of things. It didn't really happen. I mean, were some people sometimes annoyed by certain uh, situations uh, or, or certain uh, um, um, certain questions? Probably yes, but that was really on a very very low basis. So um, it was really uh, nothing really changed. So in in the operational business, and um, that kept a lot of people on board. Makes sense. So after. Then for you, seven years, basically. Yeah, you a, left, bit more than, uh, a bit more than six. Seven, yeah. yeah, a bit more than six years, you, you, you left the company to found something new. Yeah, and you're just in the beginning of doing that. Can you just describe like what you're doing and how did you get up? With, uh, how did you come up with that with that new idea? Because I mean, that's obviously also something that a lot of people are interested in. How do you come up with ideas? Uh, yeah, um, kind of a synthetic process, organic process. So, but first, let's start with what you do now. Yeah, so I founded uh, Price Loop um, a couple of weeks ago together with my new co-founder uh, Dan Tran. Um, as I said, he's uh, ex-head of AI from Axel Springer, um, and uh, Price Loop is a software as a service provider for B two B companies uh, or for e commerce companies. Um, um, that aims to uh, boost their revenue and boost their profitability by uh, making their pricing data driven. So basically, we optimize prices using artificial intelligence um, and uh, using self-learning systems. Um, and uh, yeah, how did how did I come up with the idea? Um, I built up a, a data science team at Contorion. Uh, already since 2016, so we were quite early uh, doing that. Um, today, um, a lot of e-commerce companies have, have data science teams, but we were, I guess, one of the first. Um, and uh, since then, we did a lot of A-B testing. So a lot of uh, A-B testing over, over several years, uh, what kind of um, artificial intelligence setup works best and achieves the highest um, uh, revenue and profits. Um, and uh, I was so surprised by that, um, how, how much and actually uh, how, how much uplift you can get um, and how much impact you can get uh, from making uh, um, these kind of approaches. Then uh, I said, okay, well, um, this is something that other online, um, uh, online players or e-commerce companies um, should do as well um, and can, can lift a lot of value there. Um, and I decided to basically offer this as a product. Okay. But um, can you talk a little bit about before we go to like price loop a little more? Um, what, what's kind of your experience? Because I mean, what you hear from many others, I mean, everybody talks about AI, yeah, <laughs> and and how that helps uh, businesses. And um, and then if you look 
at least the companies that I know, if you look at what people actually do, there's like these data science teams, yeah, they, they do something. Uh, but then it's kind of often not really clear how kind of the normal value chain or the normal operation is kind of influenced by that and how the two interlink. Can you, can you share some experiences of what you guys did uh, at Contorion? I mean, yes, in pricing, but what, what are areas where it really works and how do you have to organize this kind of stuff to, to really make everyday work more data-driven? And, and how did you guys do that at, at Contorion? Because I think that's a very interesting thing first to understand and, and then go a little bit more to, to price yeah. detail. Um, at Contorion, we had a separate business intelligence team from the data science team, I guess, this is kind of like step one. Um, so to really define the role of data science in a, in a proper way um, and business intelligence being responsible in, in that setup for um, you know building the data warehouse, gathering the data, um, doing the reports or, or at least um, creating the reporting infrastructure such as you know, with tools such as Looker or Tableau. Um, so, um, that people can can pull their own reports um, and basically the bi team is responsible for having a, a good basis of data which is which is um, proper and clean and then uh, the role of the data science team is at contorion at least uh, to build products so they are building um, oftentimes machine learning based um, tools so products internal products that actually do something. So their their role is not to provide fancy reports and bubble charts and three-dimensional bubble charts and all this stuff um, to management, but their role is really um, to build something that is then in production and actually changes something, takes decisions or, or does something. Um, and, um, and the customer always has to be another internal team or who's, who's the customer of the product? Uh, usually, yes. Yeah. So the ideas um, can come from anybody. Um, so it was uh, in, in that setup, it was often that the data science team uh, and, and I was also quite heavily included um, um, in, in those kind of discussions, but that, that we as a team um, came up with ideas on what to do and then we approached the stakeholders. Um, or it was also the other way around that sometimes stakeholders said from, you know, from marketing, from CRM, hey, um, can you make a certain prediction for us? And then, then there was a, um, a tool implemented that um, did these predictions on an ongoing basis, which then fed directly into the downstream, into the into the marketing processes. Um, and that was the whole idea. So we, it was not really an ad hoc reporting kind of thing, but really the, the idea was to build something that is then running um, and, and, and doing stuff. Um, and that worked. Um, that worked fairly well. So areas where where we really got a lot of impact was really um, so primarily pricing. So this is also obviously uh, the reason why I'm now making this uh, um, the new business model of my new venture. Um, and other areas were things like um, marketing. So uh, bidding for um, for Google, for instance, uh, you have uh, really a lot of decisions that you need to take uh, with a lot of uh, input factors. Um, and, and this was also a topic um, and other topics uh, such as CRM um, or also warehouse disposition. So which products to buy for your warehouse and, and what quantity. Um, it also involves a lot of forecasting and with forecasting, you know, you can do things better with machine learning. Um, and uh, those were the, 
some of the main points. And there were some some other projects, um, you know, um, carton box optimization um, was one of them. Um, having an AI-based optimization um, on, on your carton box sizes that we use um, to send the, send the packages. Um, so these kind of things were, were the main topics. So you try to basically every kind of more complex or more dynamic problem with a lot of input factors you try to put into some kind of internal product that's data science kind of based in, in, in a way. Yeah, so wherever we felt that um, we have a decision process where we have a really a lot of commercial decisions to take. Ideally, um, you know, kind of like a decision stream, so to speak. Um, ideally changing somewhat dynamically. Um, and this is usually what we what we were looking at. And um, the way it was done before at Contorion, these kind of processes, and I would say usually the way how it's, how it's still often done uh, today in other businesses um, is uh, basically rule-based. Um, so that people implement rules and people say, um, okay, um, uh, in pricing, for instance, I want to follow a certain competitor um, and have a distance of 50 cent to that competitor, but only uh, down until a minimum margin of 15% or whatever. And uh, then there is a rule that just does this. So that's already better than if I, if I would be setting any, every price manually. Um, however, it's not self-learning, so the rule is not improving itself. It's just a static rule. Um, and uh, the next step is really a rule-based system to really figure out, okay, how important is it really to, to be, um, you know, one of the cheapest or can I actually move upwards in price um, and, and these kind of things. And that logic applies not only, of course, to, to pricing, but also to marketing, bidding. And, and uh, really a, a lot of different decisions are, are of that kind. Um, and... Um, with, with the inspiration I got, uh, I got there from from my experience, we we're also aiming at price loop to um, uh, to 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 tackle or to make it a flexible tool um, uh, in our vision. Make it a flexible tool that works also for um, for general decision processes, for data driven decision processes. And um, on the pricing side, I mean, one big question there's often: how flexible can you really be? I mean, you know, you have. Uh, manufacturers or suppliers that expect you to have a certain price range and uh, um, I mean how how does it work in practice if you have a dynamic pricing system like like yours or what's the best practice there you just let it run and then you you directly implant or input the prices the system comes up with um, in, in, into the product information management system and then it's basically uh, live or, or the, is it is it kind of a semi-automatic pricing where there's some suggestions from the tool and the human being checks it and how how, how does it work and how often do you do it? I mean, do you do it like daily or my, uh, supposedly Amazon does like a million of price changes every day? Um, like how how does it work best practice wise? Yeah. Um, so uh, first to your question, okay. Um, is it actually possible to 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 change prices a lot? Um, so certainly there are manufacturers um, who don't like it if you're pricing too cheap. Um, I mean, it's it's uh, um, legally not allowed to um, to to take that uh, into account as a dealer. Um, however, also from the dealer side, um, um, yeah, you, you often don't want to price too cheap, or you also often don't want to. Uh, be your number one on Idealo and so on and so on. Um, so definitely there are constraints. 
And um, so in, in, in our price loop approach, so I'm talking now about the price loop approach, not necessarily about the Contorian approach, but um, in, in our approach, um, we are, um, we of course have, uh, um, we, we can set limits on um, uh, how low actually the price can go. Um, so what, what is the range where the, the artificial intelligence can operate in? Um, and also uh, we are able to basically punish um, the optimization um, of that artificial intelligence for certain strategic um, topics. And uh, um, uh, this is, I think, quite a cool feature. So we can essentially say, um, yes, it's okay to go to price position number one on the Diallo, um, but uh, you get a punishment in your optimization if you do that. So um, that means that the artificial intelligence will still do it if, if the uplift is large enough. But for products where um, there is not a big uplift expected from, from doing this step, it, it will not do it. And um, it's then kind of a preference parameter on, on how, um, um, uh, how, how high you set that bar of additional uplift that you need to gain in order to go to price position one. And if you have a very sensitive brand, for instance, where you really don't want to be on price position one for a lot of products, you just set that bar quite high, then um, the algorithm will automatically stay below price position one um, uh, on, on a lot of products and only maybe go on one or two products on price position one where it really makes a huge difference for your profit and revenue. So um, that's uh, that's our approach there. Uh, I think then you also asked for, for the number of price changes. Um, so that, that's actually also something that, that we had a lot of discussions uh, on um, back at Contorium. And at Priceloop, we now found uh, found the approach um, reasonable to say, okay, um, if if the price change is actually also lifting the expected um, revenue and profit enough, then we do the change. And if the change is only um, lifting uh, expected revenue and profit by, by just a little bit, so um, th then we don't do it. Um, and, and we don't um, we don't have a, a certain frequency and say, okay, we, we update every price every day or something like that. But rather we really always look at, okay, if we, if we, if we set the price from where it is today, to the new optimal price, considering all new information and so on, um, would that really make a, a relevant change to your expected revenue and profit, or would it would it not make a big change in percent? And only if it does, then we actually change the price. And uh, you can also set that threshold as a preference parameter in our in our software. So if you don't want to have a lot of price changes. Then you just set a, a fairly high threshold that you need really a, a significant uplift um, in your expected um, uh, performance to make a price change. Or if you're if you don't care and if you're fine with a lot of price changes, you just set it very low. You you said how it influences revenue and profit, and I think that's that's a very interesting issue. I mean, what's because every that's also one thing in, in like machine learning or optimization models. What do you optimize for? Yeah, I mean, there's no right or wrong in what you optimize for because obviously you can say uh, you, you, you want to do more revenue, or you, I mean, what what would you recommend normally? I mean, you, obviously from what you said, I can infer that you are kind of advocating for a combination of revenue and profit. Yeah, uh, would it be feasible to also do something like expected lifetime revenue? based on what happens there? I mean, what's kind of a realistic, pragmatic optimization goal to, 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 to optimize for? Yeah. Um, so uh, we are actually defining um, a target function 
um, that that is being optimized, um, and that is basically uh, simply profit plus a factor we call it lambda um, times the revenue. So um, you basically optimize your 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 absolute profit in euro um, that you would you would achieve in the next thirty days, for instance, um, plus like three percent, for instance, of revenue. And with the three percent, it's also a preference parameter that the that the customer can set. Um, you can say, okay, if I, if I put it to zero, um, then I'm I'm only um, uh, optimizing on on profit or contribution margin. And if I if I set it high, um, then I want to have market share. I want to grow, um, and and uh, uh, I'm I'm fine with a lower absolute profit um, and and trading that for more revenue. So essentially, that's a preference parameter that we take in uh, um, from the customer, and uh, then we optimize on that target function. And you can theoretically. So right now, our 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 software is not doing that, but taking CLV into account as well is, is certainly something that is that is possible. And if there is a customer that says this would be important for us, we could certainly also um, include that as a feature in the future. Okay, so, um, but in the end, it's basically up to the customer specific goals, what they would like, what, what they would like to optimize for. That's kind of the, the essence of the optimization function. So they have to come up with this themselves. And then then you can can kind of uh, define this. What, one issue that often comes up, and I think that is, uh, I mean, in, yeah, that's a bit management or a lot of you know statistically inferred methods. How can you make sure, yeah, that you know your predictions that you do for you know future revenue or future profit uh, actually have enough data to to have a good you know, because especially if you have a lot of products like Contorium, you have 100,000 plus products. I don't know how many you have today, but it's a six digit amount of products. Um, and how can you, and on, on a lot of those products, you only have very limited, or very scarce data, so to speak, on how many people look at them and how many put them in shopping cart and how many buy them. How, how do you, and, and a similar problem you have in Google, you know, if you have bit management tools where, you know, you have a million keywords and a lot of those are not looked at or searched for once or twice. So like, how do you solve this, this scarce data problem in, in e-commerce? Yeah. Um, so there are different approaches to that. Um, one of them is to, or, or they, they basically all have in common that they are clustering approaches. So you're trying to find intelligent clusterings. Um, and uh, a more simple approach to that would be to cluster along categories or brands and just say, okay, I have my brands here and, and every brand is now a cluster. And um, if I don't have enough data on product level, I just go to the brand and, and look at the, what the brand is doing or look at what the category is doing. Um, so that's one of the more simpler approaches. Um, actually, what uh, what we do at PriceLoop is to have um, a dynamic clustering, um, uh, which um, takes into account um, the click behavior of users on the website, um, and which also takes into account um, the product data or the, or the rich product data. So not only the brand and the uh, categories, but also the descriptions. Um, and um, uh, via deep learning, we um, we derive a, cl a clustering from that. So it's essentially, um, uh, uh, yeah. We, uh, so in, in artificial intelligence terms, it's called um, embeddings, um, and um, it's possible to use all that data um, and uh, uh, basically drill it down to very low, um, 
to a fairly low dimensional space um, and to, uh, to a low dimensional and continuous space. And um, uh, products that are very similar together will also be fairly similar together in that, um, in, in that low, low dimensional space. And then you can use the, um, the space essentially to, to, um, to cluster your products. And that works, in our experience, that works a lot better than, than having uh, clusters based on brands and categories. Okay, so the, the goal is really to find the best approach to get homogeneous clusters by whatever dimension and then aggregate this data or the statistical information you have across those products and aggregate that within one cluster and then thereby derive um, a meaningful a meaningful answer. Okay, so um, yeah, that, uh, is there actually a way, and I think also, like how does the learning work on that level? I mean, is there a way to find out whether this clustering method has been better than another clustering method? I mean, how can you actually see that in, in, in numbers and, and can can users or, or customers like somehow find out whether they're on the right path uh, by using a certain method or are, are they are they on the wrong path? Yeah. So um, at Priceloop, we believe uh, quite quite strongly in A/B testing, also in pricing. Um, this is actually also a fairly new approach in pricing, I would say. So not many companies are doing this. Um, I, uh, already talked to quite a lot of uh, potential customers, uh, other e-commerce companies, and actually not many are doing systematic A-B testing and pricing. And uh, no matter if, you, if, if, if you're if you an e-commerce company and you want to use, uh, uh, no matter if you want to use Priceloop in the future, um, I would definitely recommend to do A-B testing. Um, and it is possible actually also if, if you're not able or if you don't want to have um, different prices for the same product. So it's often an argument to say, okay, from our systems or from our strategy, um, we are not able to have um, for the same product different prices for different customers. So uh, one person goes to the website, sees a price of 100 euro, next person comes to the website, sees it at 120 euro. Um, many companies don't want that or can't do that. Um, and so they say, okay, we're, it's not able to A-B test. Um, what we then do in these cases is basically to um, split um, the assortment into randomized product groups. So um, if, if it's an assortment of 100,000 products that we would like to price with the, uh, with the price engine, um, then we split it into several randomized groups. Um, and uh, then if you randomize well, and if you maybe take out exceptional outlier products that make up really a, a, a very high percentage of sales, then those groups um, are statistic statistically significant. Um, and uh, then you can actually test uh, uh, with these groups and, and say, okay, now I, I want to test uh, um, the clustering method. Then you basically apply um, the new clustering method um, to one of the groups. And for the other group is a control group that still is based on the old clustering method. And, and you can see which one performs better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's actually a very good point because I think this true A-B testing or testing culture in general, and which is in most cases an A-B testing culture. If you look at who's truly doing that in, in practice on a, on a daily basis, there's not very many companies. I mean, that's, um, and I think that's definitely something, a learning, if you truly want to become a, a data-driven, experiment-driven, fact-based company, pursuing a certain number of tests per month, per week, in every area 
uh, is definitely something that, that we can recommend as also as investors because it really changes the culture of a company and it really uh, leads to you know uh, the best argument kind of wins based on facts kind of mentality uh, which which helps also apart from the the, the isolated effect of the AB test, which I think helps to make a company a lot more um, yeah, uh, resilient to you know, irrational kind of streams that come up uh, or tend to come up in companies. I think it's a, it's a really great culture to have. I mean, you might argue it limits you a little bit in your creativity <laughs> or to, to do really crazy things that you cannot put into AB tests. Uh, that might be true. So there might be some areas or there might be some things that, you know, you just try out without having them tested thoroughly before. But I think just to run and, and like have some kind of continuous improvement in your business on a day-to-day -day basis, I think that um, the advantage definitely outweighs some of the disadvantages it might have, you know, and, and also the, the kind of culture you want to have uh, within within your business. So, and who's at, at price who's your ideal customer? I mean, who do you want to work with uh, and, and what kind of uplift can somebody expect? I mean, what's kind of a range, what's realistic in, in pricing? Uh, how, how much of percent of revenue or contribution margin you can actually gain if you, if you do dynamic pricing in a, in a systematic uh, way with a tool like yours? Yeah. Um, so, from my experience, it's possible to um, to achieve up to 15 to 20 percent uh, revenue uplift, um, and at the same time, a significant uh, contribution margin uplift in the order of uh, one to two percentage points. Um, and I've seen these results before, and they were probably A/B tested. So um, this is definitely possible. And of course, um, what what actually is, is anything like in the assortment or whatever, just Ceteris paribus, so to say, just yeah. the effect of the So, so that was essentially tested via A/B tests. So the 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 test group that had the um, uh, the, uh, the machine learning pricing was performing uh, in that order better than the other test group. So it was really properly tested. It was not a a test uh, with with some flawed time comparisons or something. Um, and of course, it depends really a lot on uh, how you do pricing today. So. If you're really coming from a world with manual prices um, uh, um, and uh, you have a lot of products priced manually um, or with a lot of outdated prices, maybe even the effect could be even higher. Um, if you already have an extremely well done pricing based on rules or you, if you already have your own uh, machine learning approaches, uh, potentially the effect is smaller. So there, there's, a, there's certainly a range. And the ideal customer for us, um, in the first step, we are we are looking um, we are looking for uh, customers uh, um, which are e-commerce companies with more than fifty million revenue. And how realistic is it to to do something, I mean, or how much sense does it make to move beyond e-commerce? Yeah, so if you have just I don't know, if you're a SaaS company and have uh, I don't know three different tiers in your product. I mean, does it also make sense to do continuous A/B testing there, from from your experience or, or your current uh, view, or is it something where you do pricing test once and then you have established kind of three tiers and then that, that's that? 
basically. I would say um, if you have a yeah, if you have a significant number of customers um, and maybe also a significant number of products, then it definitely makes sense to A/B test in the way that I described. So really with randomized products, um, and and that really doesn't matter that that much if it's physical products that you're selling or if it's a SaaS product um, and you're selling, uh, I don't know, document digitization or something like that. Um, I would say in either of these cases, A-B testing makes sense. Of course, if you have a very limited amount of products, um, yeah, it's probably not possible anymore to do this kind of like A-B testing trick with just randomizing the product, uh, the product groups, um, then you probably need to really randomize on uh, on, a, on a customer level so that for the same product, different uh, uh, visitors on your website see different prices. Um, I guess that that is going to be a requirement if you have not a, not a lot of uh, different products. But in general, that approach. Um, um, so uh, if if you're selling something online, or uh, potentially also if you're selling something offline to a high number of customers, I would always recommend A/B testing. Okay, cool. Thanks. Thanks a lot um, for. Yeah, the, uh, your points and for giving us a, a great insight into what you do. If you have any further questions to Richard, just uh, send us an, uh, e either an email to us, podcast at projectA.com or to richard.schwenke at priceloop.ai. Yeah, so, um, uh, but obviously we are more than happy to put you in touch with, with Richard or if you have any further questions just as well. If you want to become a better user, obviously you're also more than welcome to, to, to do that. If you do yeah, at least a little bit of revenue and have a number of products where it actually makes sense to, to do that. So we, we hope this was interesting to, to you and, and generated some, some insight uh, for potential founders, for people in the AI space, for people doing e-commerce, but also for uh, middle stand companies that want to buy startups. Yeah, so hopefully also some learnings there and uh, Hopefully you had a good uh, uh, last 45 or 50 minutes. Thanks a lot. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. If you did, how about you subscribe on Spotify and or iTunes and give us a rating.